Welcome to Champion Church of the Nazarene's weekly sermon podcast. It's easy to judge others because we are all troubled in some fashion by other people. But in our second installment of Good Trouble, we will journey with a judgmental man who is transformed by Jesus to do amazing things for the kingdom. And he will leave judgment behind. If you've been here for the past six years, more than likely you have heard some version of my story a little bit. I grew up in the church, but I grew up with a particular flaw. Uh, I don't blame my parents or my pastors or anybody who, who were a part of my formation. I think it was just something that I did um, whenever I was shared that Jesus saves you, now you live in this way. And here are the standards that you're to live. Well, my brain took it as, well, everybody else needs to have those same exact standards when I was younger. And so what happened is that I would often apply those standards onto other people, and I would let them know if they're not living into the standards. I became a very judgmental person. I was a very judgmental person very early on in my life. And uh, I'll be honest, I alienated a lot of people with this flaw. I don't know if it was just simply me not fully understanding the grasp of what love and grace is or what it is. But I'm thankful that I haven't stayed that way, even though that habit of judging other people still finds its way into my brain. (laughs) Now, this is not a, it's not confined just to people who were, who grew up in the church and who were Christians. I feel like our culture really has accepted a lot of, like, being judgmental is the thing to do. And the reason why is it feels like everybody is jostling and trying to convince people of their way of doing things, their standards of doing things. And I think what has contributed to our judgmental piece of our culture is social media. You look at somebody on social media and you see this nice picture and you're like, oh my goodness, look at how great their life is, right? We can begin to judge somebody else by the appearance of things. But then there's the other thing too, is that we also have these conversations into the void, onto the screen, instead of with each other. And we throw out our opinions about this, that, these, or those. And we we become more judgmental when we're not in relationship with people. So you can go somewhere across somebody's profile or hear one sentence in somebody's uh, conversation with somebody else and you make a judgment call immediately. Oh, I can't believe they believe that. Or did you see that they do this? Or yada, 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 right? And we judge people according to appearance, according to ethics, according to philosophy, according to how much people have or make, like wealth, politics, habits, you know, pretty much all of life. (laughs) We judge people. And the reason why we judge people is, quite frankly, because those folks trouble us. And our mechanism, whether it be a defense mechanism or whatever it is, is to say, well, eh, not going to hang out with those people, talk to those people, befriend those people, et cetera, et cetera. Now, as I've grown, now this is a reflection from me. This isn't isn't from here. This is just a reflection from me. 
As I've grown to understand who I am and myself about why I was so judgmental and why I can be so judgmental, I've come to the recognition that the reason why we can be judgmental is for two reasons. One, truly, somebody else is doing something that we just don't like, and it troubles us to a point that we want to apply our standards onto them. That's that one. I think the one thing that we don't talk about, though, is we judge people who are struggling with the same things that we are struggling with. And the reason why we would judge somebody who's struggling with the same thing that we are is because we want to feel a little bit better about ourselves, even though we're struggling with the same thing. That judgmentalism is an insecurity. I have this problem too. It makes me feel better though, more secure, if I elevate myself above somebody else who's struggling as well. So judgment can be, quite frankly, a reflection of insecurity. And that was me. That second part was that insecurity. Because even though I had these standards when I was younger, uh, I didn't always live into them. <laughs> the good thing about this, though, oh, wait, before I go there. The basis of every judgment that we can make is based on fear. It's fear of another person and how they live their life to affect us, or it's the fear of what we do getting out and us being judged by somebody else, right? The good news is this, though. Within the Christian faith, we have this amazing belief. Every single person falls short. Every person's trouble. And you, wait, that doesn't sound like good news, does it? Well, it is. It's good because the first recognition that every single person has a struggle deals with certain things, certain things like temptations or habits or fears or whatever it might be, puts us all on a, on, a, on a field that says, I can relate with you. You've got an issue, I got issues. Let's not let that come between us. Let's get together and work through this together. But sadly, too often, we fall ourselves falling into the habit of being judgmental. For us to be able to participate in good trouble, we have to shed that habit of judging others and beginning to live into the way that Christ has called us to live. And so the story that we are going to read today is found in Acts chapter 9. And the person that we are going to read about is Saul. I was Saul when I was younger. As I was telling you, I relate especially with Saul. Now, maybe not to the extent that Saul was, but the thing of it is, is that you and I really don't understand that Saul wouldn't have been seen as a person who is troubled in his day. He was a religious leader. He was smart. He had high status. And he was a Pharisee. Now, here's the deal. 
when we in, in the year 2022 who have read the Bible for years and years and years and years, we hear the word Pharisee, we think villain. No, they weren't seen as villains really near as much as we might think they are. They were seen as having it all together. Pharisees had it together. Because what Pharisees preached and believed was that God, or the, the people of Israel, first century Judaism, needed to get back to the way that God had called them to live through the law. Like strict adherence to the law. So they had to have all their I's dotted and their T's crossed. They followed the law to the T. So people wouldn't see them as being troubled. So Saul, in a lot of ways, is a story for the church to maybe be a little bit reflective whenever we struggle with judgmentalism ourselves. But why is Saul himself so judgmental. Well, he gets to this point where he finds out that these people who are following Jesus are sharing the exact opposite of what he believes and what he believes to bring everybody back under God. They say that the grace comes first, that the forgiveness comes first, that God's blessing comes first, and then you change. For a Pharisee, it was the exact opposite. We need to change so that God will bless us. That's a significant shift. So what does Saul begin to do? He begins to round up the Christians for the authorities so that they would stop preaching this. Even to the point of, hey, here's the guy who I was looking for. You do what you want with him, and more than likely they were going to be killed. Saul was willing to do some of the heavy lifting so that Christians would be killed because of what they were preaching. I didn't want anybody killed when I was younger. I, need, I think I need to say that I, don't want, I didn't want anybody to die in my judgmentalism earlier. But that's sometimes what we can do. We can judge somebody and say, well, it was coming to them anyways. Do you, do you see the way the life they were living? You ever done that? You ever done that? But here's the crazy part. Saul meets Jesus in a radical way. And his story will give us an understanding of just what God can do in our world that so, uh, so easily leans into judgment instead of love. We're going to read in Acts chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. And we read these words. It'll be up on the screen for you. Meanwhile, Saul was still spewing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, and he went to the high priest, seeking letters to the synagogues in Damascus, and if he found persons who belonged to the way, the way of Jesus, whether men or women, these letters would authorize him to take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. During the journey, as he approached Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven encircled him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice asking him, Saul, Saul. Why are you harassing me? And Saul asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are harassing, came the reply. Now get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you must do. Those traveling with him stood there speechless, and they heard the voice, but saw no one. And after they picked Saul up from the ground, 
He opened his eyes, but he couldn't see. So they led him by the hand into Damascus for three days. He was blind and neither ate nor drank anything. In Damascus, there was a certain disciple named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision. Ananias! I don't know why the Lord yelled like that, but okay. He answered, yes, Lord. The Lord instructed him, go to Judas's house on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying, and in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias enter and put his hands on him to restore his sight. Ananias countered, Lord, I have heard many reports about this man, and people say that he has done horrible things to your holy people in Jerusalem. He's here with authority from the chief priest to arrest everyone who calls on your name. The Lord replied, go. This man is the agent I have chosen to carry my name before Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Ananias went to the house, and he placed his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord sent me. Jesus, who appeared to you on the way, as you were coming here, and he sent me so that you could see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And instantly flakes fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after eating, he regained his strength and he stayed with the disciples in Damascus for several days. And right away, he began to preach about Jesus in the synagogues. He is God's son, he declared. This account in Acts is actually repeated two more times. And then this account is actually shared by Saul himself in a number of his letters multiple times after the fact. This is one of the most retold stories in the, all of the New Testament. It's important. You want to know why? God is on the move. And he's going to surprise us with who he brings along the way. God is on the move, and he's going to surprise us to who he, pay, who, who, who he chooses and who he brings along the way. And this man, Saul, who is so into his religious standards, so much into his philosophy, so much that he is willing to see people die... is going to not only be converted, but called into a new vocation in this moment. That anybody who you might think to be the worst person in the world can be saved by Jesus Christ. That is good news, y'all. It's not good news to those of us who want to be judgmental, but it's good news. <laughs> because I believe truly the biblical writers, when they wrote their different letters, when they wrote their different accounts, I think they saw how easily the church could fall into the philosophy of Saul. We are saved. We're living this new life. We've been given everything. And with this, we might feel a little bit bigger than what we are, and we might become 
just like Saul and how we treat others. That's why Saul's story is so important. Because when we come across somebody who we find to be the most troubling people in our estimation, in our judgment, we might forget that Jesus loves them and can save them. Just like he has saved us and just like he has saved Saul. Jay Sundberg says it this way. What God can do in a person's life by intersecting their path with the resurrected Jesus is vast. Maybe the lesson for all of us here is that we should not write anyone off as too far outside the kingdom. We should not write anyone off as too far outside the kingdom. When we judge folks and say, well, their life is a mess, they'll never get it in order, we are writing them off. When we are just offended by the actions of a certain person, why would anybody ever do that? We are writing them off outside of God's kingdom. We are putting ourselves in a position of Saul. And we have judged who they are before even knowing them. The beautiful thing about this, though, is that Jesus doesn't just save Saul for the benefit of saving Saul. Saul has a particular vocation ahead of him. God is calling him to a particular thing. Who is he calling him to? All the people who are not religious. (laughs) Gentiles. I got to tell you something right now. If you think that Saul did not like the Christians who were preaching that Jesus was Lord and that grace is available to everybody, and he hated them, I can tell you something else. The Gentiles he probably hated as much or more than those (laughs) disciples. Because for everything in the Pharisees, it was about law and order. We've got to get everybody to our standards so that God will bless us. And here's Jesus saying, hey, Saul, just so you know, I'm going to send you to the people you hate the most. I'm going to send you to the atheists. I'm going to send you to those who believe in Greek gods. I'm going to send you to those who believe in Roman gods. I'm going to send you to people who don't care about gods at all. It's crazy to think that Jesus who hung out with marginalized, less educated people would choose such a guy like Saul. Because Saul's super intelligent, super educated, super, like, everything about this just doesn't scream like it makes sense. But hey, we worship a God who raised from the dead, and that doesn't seem like it makes sense some days, doesn't it? Saul is an undeniable witness to the amazing power of Jesus, of just how much he can transform a person. Why would you send one of the most hardline, nationalistic, fanatical Jews to go to Gentiles? The answer is simply, God did a lot within Saul to the point of 
using his intelligence to bring the gospel in a brand new way to a lot of people. But he would not be the first one you would think of. N.T. Wright says it this way, it's crazy to think that the one man to take the gospel to the pagan world would be one of the most hardline nationalistic fanatical Jews, but God can do, what God can do is even turn Saul's life around. And so Saul's life is turned around, not just for himself, but for those who had not heard about Jesus yet. Meaning that if Jesus can transform Saul, he can transform atheists and Greek God worshipers and Roman God worshipers. In our own life, God can transform Satanists and Buddhists and Hindus. God can transform addicts and everybody that you can think of. Jesus can transform anybody. That's what this story is about. Anytime you feel like you gotta, like, ah, I gotta judge this person, remember that Saul was the most judgmental person in the world. And we'd probably say, don't you dare, Jesus. Don't you save him. Oh, he saved him, all right. And used and worked through him in brand new ways that nobody had ever seen. In fact, Saul is so important that he writes the majority of our New Testament, y'all. After Acts, the next however many books, all Saul. He goes by his name, Paul. Same person. Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians. All of these books, it's all Paul. It's all Saul. But what I love about this story is that it's not just an individual account that Saul experiences. There are people around him that witness this. But the really amazing thing is Jesus brings in a guy named Ananias. And this is the only time Ananias shows up in Scripture. But goodness, does he have an important piece to play. Ananias is in Damascus, where Saul is going to round up Christians to imprison them or even kill them, right? Ananias receives from God, hey, I need you to go and visit with this guy Saul. He's praying right now. And I appreciate Ananias is open and honest with God, he goes, uh, this, this guy, isn't he going to kill me? <laughs> uh, I'm not sure about this. But God says go. And even though he has this frame of mind where he's not sure about it, you might even say, well, he's being sort of judgmental right there. He goes against what he has judged and does exactly what God calls him to do. Ananias allows God to dictate his actions, not his own judgment of Saul. And what does Ananias do? He goes and he lays hands on him. And the one thing that just is so amazing, how you know that Ananias really has been transformed in himself, is he doesn't say, hey, Saul, get up, you're healed. He says, brother, brother Saul. Ananias, who is a follower of Jesus, does not see himself as higher than this new convert to Jesus. Brother, you are healed. Ananias allows God to dictate his actions, not his judgment. 
Ananias is sort of the opposite of Saul in this moment, sort of the foil. And without Ananias, Saul would not have had such a confirmation that it was indeed this Jesus who has totally revolutionized his life and that his calling to the Gentiles wasn't crazy. Because <laughs> there's some moments where you're like, really, God? This sounds crazy. He brings people into your life to say, brother, sister, go and do the Lord's will. Go and love the people you are called to love. Go and share the good news with the people he has called you to give the good news to. And so as I read this, I really hope to be more like Ananias in my life than Saul. Before Saul is, is called by Jesus. I hope to be more like Ananias than what Saul was like. That doesn't mean that there are not troubling people in the world to me. There are plenty of troubling people to me. And my judgment, my judgment uh, meter still goes off in my brain really fast. It does. The question is, do I allow God to speak into me to turn that off and to love the person that's in front of me? And I think, quite frankly, it feels tempting to be like Saul so much because we think that if everybody would just fall in the place and have the same mind as us or live into the same standards, that everything would be better. We do. We get that temptation. That's what Saul believed, though. And I think sometimes you and I see movements in the church to be like Saul instead of to be like Ananias. Too many movements in the church are like Saul raging against the church in his pharisaical philosophy, bringing witch hunts, forced compliance, and violence. But did Jesus ever bring violence? Did Jesus ever say, you better do this, or I tell you what? He doesn't force it. It's grace. It's a gift. Jesus did not judge you and I, so we cannot judge others. It's why Jesus goes so far in his teachings to say, judge not, for how you judge, you will be judged. It's why James says, says, mercy is more powerful than any judgment. We are called to go past those impressions, those things that go off in our mind, to see the person and to love the person as Jesus has loved us. So, who are the people that trouble you the most? I want you to think for a second here. Who are the people that trouble you the most? And when you think of that person, when you think of those people, are you like Saul, thinking that, oh, we got to force them to do what Jesus wants them to do? Or are you like Ananias? Who are the people that trouble you? For some of us, it's hippies. 
For some of us, it's addicts. For some of us, it's those who, live, who have a different sexuality and live it out proudly. For some of us, it's people who've had an abortion. Goodness gracious me, the past two weeks have been dark. Your neighbor, your cousin, Maybe it's the people who say, I hate God in the church. Maybe it's the atheists or the Satanists or the occult. Maybe it's people on welfare. Maybe it's those capitalists, socialists, and communists. Maybe it's that political party. Maybe it's those boomers. Maybe it's those millennials. Maybe it's those Gen Zers. Gen Xers, don't worry, you're forgotten. <laughs> the reality of it is, friends, is that every single time we are tempted to lean into what troubles us about somebody else, we need to come back to God and allow his love to infiltrate that and allow us to relate in the way that Jesus has called us to relate with all people. And that is to love our neighbor as ourselves. Anybody that you have thought of that troubles you is just like Saul. If God can save Saul, God can save anybody. If God can save you, God can save anybody. If God can save me, he can save anybody. And so we cannot live in judgment, and we must rather recognize that the troubles of every single person are remedied by Christ alone. And Ananias saw that. Be more like Ananias than Saul today. Remember how I said at the beginning of all of this that every single person has fallen short, and I said, that doesn't sound like good news. Here's the other piece of that. Nobody is perfect. But God gives us the ability to love every person who isn't perfect, even ourselves, and even that person who troubles you the most. God gives us the love to look beyond our judgments and to love imperfect people with his perfect love. No person is perfect. No situation is perfect. No family is perfect. Stop thinking that your family is going to be perfect. But you know what God allows you and I to do who follow him? He enables us to love imperfect whatever perfectly because he is with us in his spirit. And that is what we must do to bring about good trouble. There are moments in popular culture that um, sometimes really help me just put, put something that is so vast into a really simple phrase. 
And there's a show that Brooke and I watched called Ted Lasso. Ted Lasso is a comedy. They swear a ton. If you don't like swearing, don't watch it, okay? I'm just telling you right now. <laughs> Pastor watches this? Don't judge me. Uh, <laughs> but just to, there, there is a scene that just speaks perfectly into the situation and gives you and I four words to remember in the moments that we are tempted to be judgmental. Let me share, let me share the story up to this point. Ted Lasso is an American football coach in the state of Kansas. And he is brought in by an owner of a Premier League soccer club in England to coach soccer. Ted has no idea how to manage a soccer club. This is intentional. See, the new owner wants to tank the team because it was originally her ex-husband's team, and he loved it. She wanted to get back at him because this ex-husband was a terrible human being, cheated on her, did all of these things. And so she was going to get back at him. So she brings in Ted. Brings in Ted to be a failure. But then some things don't go as badly as they think. And they realize that Ted is a genuine, good-hearted person. He has his own struggles, too. But he begins to turn the tide for some of the players. And the owner becomes friends with him. Well, to throw a wrench into everything, the ex-husband wants to be spiteful back to the owner, to his ex-wife. And so he buys up a, majority, or a minority stake in the club. So at every game, he shows up with his new young hot thing to throw it in her face all the time. So the owner and Ted and the ex-husband are all in a pub. And he's throwing insults his ways. And so he challenges, the ex-husband challenges Ted to a game of darts. And this is what the wager is. If the ex-husband Rupert wins, he'll actually decide the starting lineup for the soccer club the last two games of the season. Ted himself says, if I win, you can't come to the owner's press box anymore. Leave her alone. And it's in this moment that Ted is down majorly in this dark game. And this is what happens. Mate, we all need to win. Two triple 20s and a bonsai. <laughs> Good luck. Yo, Rupert, guys have underestimated me my entire life. And for years, I never understood why. It used to really bother me. But then one day, I was driving my little boy to school, and I saw this quote by Walt Whitman. It was painted on the wall there. It said, be curious, not judgmental. I like that. So I get back in my car, and I'm driving to work. And all of a sudden, it hits me. All them fellas that used to belittle me not a single one of them were curious. You know, they thought they had everything all figured out, so they judged everything, and they judged everyone. 
and I realized that they're underestimating me. Who I was had nothing to do with it. Because <laughs> if they were curious, they would ask questions. You know? Questions like, have you played a lot of darts, Ted? <laughs> Which I would have answered, yes, sir. Every Sunday afternoon at a sports bar with my father from age 10 to 16 when he passed away. Curious, not judgmental. By the way, Walt Whitman never said that. It was just a moment for this TV show. And I can't think of four words better to shake us out of our judgmental attitude. Because really, if you think about it, when you love somebody, you ask questions. How are you? Where is this coming from? Where are you at? How is your soul? To love somebody is to find out from somebody who they are. And that requires us to be curious. So friends, may we lean upon this God who has called us to love and not to be judgmental. And in the moments that we might be tempted to lean into it, let us be curious. Curious like Ananias was. Curious as Saul was whenever he met Jesus. May we lean into him and love as he has loved us. And may we spell good trouble in this world that would rather judge than be curious. Thanks for listening to Champion Church of the Nazarene's weekly sermon podcast. We hope you were inspired by this week's message. We'd love for you to join us on a Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. We are located at 3924 High Street Northwest in Warren, Ohio. You can also join us on Facebook Live. For more information about our ministries, or if you'd like to contribute to our ministries online, visit us at championnaz.org.